Hey everybody, welcome to season two of the Mixmasters podcast. I'm your host, Steve Litcher, and for those not familiar, I'm the touring front of house engineer for Stitched Up Heart. Working with Stitched Up Heart has led me to meet an incredible number of really talented people, and I wanted to introduce you to them. I wanted to let you hear their stories and learn from their experiences. This is really your chance to listen in on behind the scenes talk and to learn from some of the best in the business. I have to give a huge shout out to my pal, Merritt Goodwin, for this killer intro music. Merritt is the lead guitarist for Stitched Up Heart, and he's also an extremely talented composer. Give him a follow on Facebook at Merritt Goodwin or on Instagram at Merritt Goodwin Official. Now let's bring up the faders and jump into this episode of Mixmasters Podcast. My guest for this episode of Mixmasters is Chris Pollock. Chris is the front of house engineer for August Burns Red. He's also an avid DLive user, so I spent a great deal of time digging into the Allen & Heath DLive system, learning exactly how he uses it with August Burns Red, and picking up some general tips and tricks. So apologies in advance if you're not a DLive fanatic, this may not be the episode for you. That said, I would encourage you to listen because Chris has some amazing experiences and information, and he's just a fun guy to chat with. So let's dig in and listen to Chris Pollock from Pennsylvania, front of house engineer for August Burns Red. Hey everybody, welcome to Mixmasters. I am joined today by Chris Pollock, and Chris is the front of house engineer for August Burns Red. Chris joins me by way of Zoom, compliments of Brian Campbell. I owe Brian Campbell a couple more beverages for hooking me up with Chris. We've been chatting a little bit before the podcast started, and I'm already having a blast. So Chris... Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Yeah. So uh, as I sort of alluded to in that brief introduction, I met you through Brian Campbell. I really don't know very much about you other than you're the front of house engineer for August Burns Red. Would you mind following my normal podcast tradition here and tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, when did you get started in music? How old were you when you first either picked up an instrument or really got interested in in music? And we'll go from there. I got introduced to music super early. My mom is super into like rock music, super into Led Zeppelin and the Beatles and stuff like that. And so like from a super early age, like listening to a lot of that kind of stuff um, growing up. And then when I was in high school, um, I started playing in band. I guess I'll back up a little bit. I was, I started playing the drums when I was like 13, 14 years old, started playing in bands. And then sort of shortly thereafter, like, probably like ninth or 10th grade, I just got really interested in recording my bands. And so those two things, like playing drums and bands and recording were sort of like my thing um, through high school. I did like my senior project, like recording other bands of kids I went to high school with. And, uh, and then I actually went to um, Drexel University in Philadelphia. Um, I was in the music industry program there um i was on like the music tech track um so it was all like recording focused and uh played in a couple different bands while i was in college and then i actually ended up dropping out of college to uh to play drums in a band called versa emerge um and uh so we did like the did like the warp tour and uh like a little headline, a couple little headline runs, um, some like bigger North American like support slots, like club slots, and uh, you know I went to Europe for the first time and stuff like that with them. And that's kind of like where I really got my first taste of like touring. And honestly, while I was playing with them, was kind of when I realized that like the job I do now exists. Even you know, even though I had been playing in bands before that, like the sound guy was always sort of this like abstract sort of like concept, like this guy that's just there uh, to like make the show happen. And I still think about that, like all the time, especially when I'm working gigs, like when I'm home, I work at the TLA and the Fillmore in Philadelphia um, between tours. And uh, I think about that, like very often, like these guys barely even know I'm here. You know what I mean? Like, uh, but anyway, that was like my intro to, to touring and live like just the existence of live audio. And then when that ended, um, I like needed to get a job <laughs> and uh, I wasn't making any money recording anybody. And so I got an internship at a club in Wilmington, Delaware, 
uh, called, uh, which is near where I live. I live in like southeastern Pennsylvania. And uh, the club was called uh, World Cafe Live at the Queen. And it was like a lot of like funk and jazz and like, like adult contemporary kind of music. But um, I just kind of like realized while I was, I ended up getting a job, like a very poorly compensated job there. Uh, shortly after my internship ended. Uh, but th- that was sort of where I realized like, oh, I feel like th- like this could be my thing. Like, like I feel like the, the my instincts, my, my like mixing instincts kind of lent themselves more to creating like a clean, intelligible live mix than like, what I was getting done in the studio at the time. And so I was just working there and uh, mixing like the open mic and the blues jam and every once in a while, like, you know, getting to do something a little more legit. But um, I have a buddy from high school who joined uh, a band called I the Breather on Sumerian Records. I don't know if you're familiar with Sumerian Records, um, but I I had been, I've been working at this, club for like a year and I was just like hey let me come on tour with you like uh like I'll I'll be your tour manager like I'll mix you guys like you know whatever whatever you need really and so they like agreed and um I did my first tour as like a TM front of house in summer 2012 I guess and it just kind of like snowballed from there so like the first the first club tour I did with them after that summer tour, I ended up mixing like three bands on that tour. Uh, one was Norma Jean and one was Born of Osiris. And then, uh, you know, that kind of, there's like a little bit of a lull. And then I ended up getting a job working for Memphis Mayfire um, in 2000, the end of 2013 into 2014. Um, I got the job working for Memphis Mayfire and then I, I worked for them for like two years um, and then I kind of went through another little, like a quick stint. I worked for Seosin, um, with Anthony Green. I did a couple tours with them in like 2016. And then, um, I started working for ABR. And so I've been working for ABR for like the last four years now. Um, so it was like kind of a quick, like, like <clears throat> I went from not doing live audio to like on tour in like a year. And then it was just like snowballed really quickly. Um, but it was cool. So, and that's kind of like just the, the history of me and music and getting an audio and stuff like that. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. I taking a step back, do you remember what console you were using at that uh, small club when you made the jump over to live? Yeah. So, so there was two rooms at that, at that, at that place. Um, the, the one I mostly worked at at the beginning was like a little 200 cap, like restaurant room, like on the street level and that was a LS9. Uh, and so even to this day, like I'm super comfortable in LS9s and M7s and CL5s and Q, whatever the, the, the LS, the new LS9. And, uh, yeah, I don't know, but that was like the first one. And there was also an SE48, um, down in the big room, which I subsequently kind of used more, um, throughout my first couple of years of doing audio. So I never really like got a ton of experience on analog until I started touring, which is kind of funny. Um, so I was like, Oh, here I am like on, like, you know, mixing this two five support slot, you know, on a heritage or whatever on a GLD depends, you know, but like not a GLD, a, a G what are those Alan Heath that were everywhere. Just GL, I think like the GL 2400s and things GL like that. 2400, yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, so, but yeah, the LS9 was like, the first console I like had to learn to mix on. So I got really used to that jog wheel and toggling around and stuff. And I still, I don't know. It's it. I know a lot of people have a problem with that desk, but I sort of, I guess because of my circumstances, like kind of have a soft spot for it. Well, the good news is they're, they're readily available and cheap on eBay. You could probably pick one up for a couple bucks and, you know, yeah. set it in your office and just, you know, look at it reminiscently. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure my fiance would love if I just brought a, a big old console. I have actually have ABR's D live here right now. And she's like bummed about that. So 
that's not a bad thing in my book. I'm I'm resting my arms on my D Live. Uh, I've got the compact, the C fifteen hundred. Right. Uh, which which desk are you mixing on with ABR? That's that's what we have. Yeah, they have a C fifteen hundred. That was actually honestly like the reason that I was initially drawn to it was just that um, the C fifteen hundred existed <laughs> and could do what it did. Um, for a lot of reasons that I can get into if you want. A lot of it has to do with how ABR operates like as a business and stuff like that. But yeah, we'll talk about that in just a minute. Um, when you were doing those, uh, when you were working your way to bigger and bigger tours, were you mixing console du jour, like whatever the venue had, were you carrying consoles for any of those tours? Little mixture of both. Yeah. So the, I would say that until the last couple of years, honestly, like in pretty, probably pretty much until ABR purchased the D live system that they have now a couple of years ago, the majority of my touring was console du jour. Um, even if I did do a tour here or there that carried a console, um, the bulk of my touring experience feels to me, to me, it feels like it's all, it's been console du jour. Um, I carried a, a pro two um, with Memphis Mayfire on like one or two tours. Um, and then obviously like, did the warp tour which is like the same console every day and then i did a taste of chaos tour which is the same kind of console every day but yeah most of my experience has been club tours console du jour um until very recently it feels at least to me yeah that it takes a certain kind of person that can comfortably go on tour and mix on a foreign console every single night i I started my own production company because I hated that. So then I always had my own console and not to talk about myself uh, was stitched apart, but the very first show that I mixed for them, uh, I just used the the venues console and it was an old analog Allen and Heath with racks and racks of outboard gear. And I was making adjustments to, you know, the compressors, the outboard compressors on the fly and the house engineer looks at me and he screams in my ear, none of those work. And I was like, Oh, it's awesome that they're powered on and yeah. sitting there. So I uh, I have nightmares of things like that. So I can only imagine what it's like, you know, doing tours in a foreign country on console du jour. So my hat, I tip my hat to you, sir, for that. Yeah, it's funny because I, I don't know, like I really, after having done more carrying consoles, there's aspects to it that I, to console du jour that I um, really like miss almost like there's this element of like showing up and like, what do I have today? And kind of like making it happen on whatever that is. Um, it wasn't really until the bar kind of got raised by like everybody having like a super dialed X32 show or whatever, like, like the opener on the ABR tour showing up with their own X32, like, and kind of like the, the bar being raised by, the accessibility of that technology that I really even started to feel like, okay, this is something I like have to do just for consistency. Um, because I really, you know, it's like, well, I got my Avid file and I got my Yamaha file and I got my Soundcraft file and, you know, I'm, I'm good to go, you know, for the most part. So like, I kind of missed that. And I also feel like I learned a lot just working with all those different consoles. Like I got, fast on more than one console and kind of having to know all the different UIs and stuff, I feel like made me better at understanding UIs, if that makes sense. Like the more console du jour I did, the easier it became to do console du jour. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't really have a problem with it. Um, definitely with like ABR, I'm glad to not have to do it anymore, but you know, if somebody, I mean, uh, circumstances, you know, uh, not being what they are right now, if someone, you know, made the right console du jour offer to me tomorrow, you know, I would, wouldn't have a problem with it because I don't know, it's kind of exciting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think the only thing that would scare me is running into like an old, you know, old Yamaha board. I, I haven't worked on one of those in, I don't even know how long I've probably forgotten you mentioned the jog wheel and I, I remember that vividly, but I don't know that I could do it as easily as you could. So like I said, my hat is tipped. Sure. <laughs> so Thanks. let's, let's talk a little bit about ABR. Um, 
you're carrying DLive with them. You're using a C1500 uh, Surface. What are you using for a mix rack? Uh, we have a DL32. Um, oh, that's the Midas uh, DM DM32. DM yeah. <laughs> well, sorry to, to anybody that listens to this that knows uh, <laughs> that knows DLive. Sort of Mike Bangs if you listen to this, especially. Uh, <laughs> yeah, DM32. <laughs> yeah, we were talking earlier, and I think that you had mentioned that you were mixing on an X32, probably the DL32 stage box. So totally, I've done it myself. One letter, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we have, a, we have a DM32, which is actually like a big, not a point of contention, but like something that we talked about a lot because the band the band owns uh, the DLive system that, that they have. And uh, we decided to go for it because of the, over like the CDM32, um, because of the redundant power supplies and the redundant gigas, even though the server doesn't have it. It still just feels nice to like have that uh, sort of, that redundancy have that just in case the ability to have that insurance there even if you don't need it it's just a little bit reassuring so i totally get it how many uh inputs is august burn red using on that uh so i think it, it, it changes around a little bit because they they um they they add and subtract a few different inputs um but i think we're like around 28 right now um that's just live inputs and like talkbacks for tech talks and stage talks and stuff and then um the way we we i think we're running like eight eight channels of playback um but that's all over sound grid um so we have a sound grid card in the mix rack and then just uh cat5 right into the playback laptop and uh just dump in digital straight from the laptop into the console. And since we don't have to split, because I actually am using the, and this is something else we can get into if you want, but I'm, I I use the, I do um, monitors and front of house. Um, I'm not like actively mixing monitors, um, but the one DM32 is handling uh, monitors and front of house. So there's no splitting. So it's just over sound grid playback straight into the console. So whatever that is, you know, 20, there are 36 inputs or something like that. <clears throat> All right. Warning to anybody listening. I'm going to geek out over the DLive platform here, and I'm going to pick Chris's brain uh, ad nauseum. So if you're not a DLive user or you don't like Alan and Heath, uh, which I can't imagine anybody being in that camp, but there are those people just, you know, fast forward in the next episode. So sorry, Chris. So I do something similar. I, I run f- uh, monitors for Stitch from front of a house. Um, are you using custom control app for them to control their monitor mixes or are they running like Mixpad, or how are they, how are they changing their mixes if need be? Yeah. So, um, we have two iPads on stage running Mixpad. Um, it's typically just the drum tech and the guitar tech, uh, each have the iPad. Um, but fortunately just because of the personalities of the guys in the band and the type of music, I think, and, um, you know, all the guitars are DI and they kind of got into using inner monitors, like on like a super stripped down, like kind of, I think it was like a little crest console um, with like no processing. And, and so they're like used to like these super like utilitarian mixes Um this is like click knocking and like each dude's get like guitar and some kick drum and they're like really utility mixes. And I even, when we switched to DLive, I tried to make them a little more musical and they were like, switch it back, switch it back. So um, there's not a whole lot, not a lot of changes that need to be made. Um, so Mixpad works for us. Um, you know, I use the custom layers. Um, I honestly kind of, because they, they had an X32 before we got to DLive, um, everyone is used to like the sends buttons on top and the faders in the bottom. So I kind of set up the custom layers like that. So like whatever it is, custom two on top has the, the in-ear, the in-ear buses and then all the monitor input channels are on the bottom and just kind of feels to them like the old app, the X32 app, but yeah, that's what we're doing. Cool. And then for, to provide diversity between the two applications, are you, splitting the are you pairing or mirroring i guess is the better way to say it mirroring the input so like you 
input one is kick for front of house and then input 64 is kick for monitors. Yeah, that's going actually, down. that's actually exactly um, what it is. So 65, I guess, yeah. because but yeah. Um, yeah. That's literally how it has set up. Um, it doesn't end up being like one-to-one -one because I actually do quite a bit of um, like malting um, of stuff for my front of house mix. So I'm like not using one-to-one -one channels as far as, um, my patch goes, but yeah, it's, this, it's, everything's double patched. I mean, there's 128 inputs. So like, it's like no problem. You know, I think even after, even after like starting at one and 65 and like using whatever I said, 36 or whatever, and it still ends up, I still have like, you know, 40 channels left over or something, you know, like of, for adding whatever else. What are you, what are you doubling up on for patches at front of house? Um, so we keep it super, the band setup is super simple. Um, so like I get, uh, mono bass and both guitars are just mono sense, um, bass and stage right guitar Kempers and guitar stage left is an axe effects. Um, and they're just a mono send. Um, so I have both guitars in like three channels. Um, yeah, it's like both. So I do like a, Haas effect like stereo thing um and then i have like a third channel that's like sort of like a boost um thing that i use so like for the rhythm guy it's more like a like a breakdown boost basically um it's just like an extra thick channel that i just kind of pop on and for the lead guitar player it's just like a uh mono like a up the middle like solo or lead kind of like bump uh channel that i have so i just kind of i put i play with that a lot. honestly <laughs> if there's anything i'm doing more than anything else during the abr show it's playing with that third uh jb lead guitar fader and just kind of muting it unmuting it pushing it up pushing it down just to kind of bring him in because he goes he goes between playing rhythm and playing a lead and then maybe taking a solo uh, a lot and because of what i'm doing with the rhythm guitar stereo thing it's nice to have that extra control over like getting him right up the middle or just getting like his part to like really pop. Um, so that's why I have uh, him on a third channel. Are you doing any sort of uh, preamp library work with either of those? So are you like running, you know, the, the dual stage valve or the tube stage on any of those third input channels or? Uh, I run the, the dual stage valve. Is that, that's the, whichever one has more knobs on it. <laughs> But yeah, whichever, like whatever the first one, because I'm pretty sure that the, the, the second one, the tube stage one is just uh, like, at least to me, it sounds like it's like the same algorithm. There's just less like stuff to play with. So I kind of got it all set up with the dual stage valve, I believe is the, is the, what was the original one? And I, I have that on quite a lot of stuff. Um, I've been seeing, I've been seeing guys using it on like bass guitar, you know, to sort of give the bass a little bit more bite, you know, in your yeah. mix. I think. Saturation in general, like, provides a lot of cool flavor. I mean, like I said, I think I have that dual stage valve on, like, kick, kick in, snare top, um, bass, both guitars, um, maybe even, like, the bass player vocal. I don't know. I have it on quite a few places because um, it adds, like, a nice weight. Um, I think I have it in, like, the diode mode. I don't have it, like, pentode and, like, cranked. It's not, like, adding, like, a ton of, like, distortion but I, I i think that the that the saturation adds especially because the console is just so kind of clean sounding i mean obviously you know but like it it, it just adds like a like some cool vibe how do you um so august burns red is pretty heavy a lot of drop tuning a lot of uh pentatonic type of stuff how are you keeping that mix so clean because I, I saw uh, August Burns Red, oh, I don't know, a couple of years ago, and I was just, I was amazed by how articulate everything was in the mix. And like with Stitched Up Heart, I've got two guitar players usually. I've got guitar playback, you know, to sort of fill in and thicken up stuff. I've got synths, drops, all sorts of, all sorts of things competing for the same frequency range. Thankfully, Mixie, you know, sings in the higher scale whereas your singer yeah. is also in that range what are you doing to keep everything you know separated and 
and present and viable in your mix? Sure. I think that my approach to mixing in general, like mixing live music in general, is to just do whatever I need to do to like make it sound the way that I think it needs to sound. So like I I do like some pretty aggressive like EQ, honestly. Like I I might like for example on the guitars, you know, I'll take a, a mono Axe FX output and put it in two channels and I'll treat both channels separately. Um, you know, pan them out. This will hit a group. I'll do a little more carving on the group to sort of even out the combination of the two. Um, maybe even like go to the PEQ and like notch a little more 4K or two, you know, 2.5 or whatever's like still gnarly to me. And then that hits a Dyna and I'll do some more. I might do some dynamic stuff on the low end or whatever. And I, I just feel like I just keep going <laughs> until like it's like that is sitting exactly where I feel like it needs to. And so uh, that's just kind of what I do with every source really. Like I just keep going until it feels the way I want it to. So like, even if that means that I'm at, you know, minus 15 at 500 on the kick in, and then there's another minus eight at 600 on the kick group like to make that room I just keep going <laughs> so honestly I think that's a big part of what makes my mixes sound like clean you know a lot of people tell me that they sound clean and I think that's just kind of like my just what I like to hear um is that I'm just doing these massive EQ moves <laughs> yeah well it's it's crazy because while it's clean, it's still got a lot of energy and a lot of power. Like you know the the ABR guitar, the rhythm guitar and the bass, you know, are just like solid. They're just punching you in the gut the whole time. And sure. I try to use I try to use low end to to compensate for like what the what isn't there, if that makes sense. Um, so like I, I like to use a ton of 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 kind of like 200 and below. Um, and then obviously on like the bass and the kick, like there's actual sub stuff happening, but a lot of the weight I think in my mixes comes from that like lower end um, <clears throat> where like it can be, it can be thick, but not, um, it doesn't get like muddy in my opinion. Like there's just because of rooms <laughs> in general, um, just a lot of like mid-range stuff makes it feel muddy to me. And by really going after that stuff and finding holes for things and then just kind of letting like the bottom end and the top end, like really like hit, hit you. Like that's where the energy comes from. So I think that like my live mixes have a pretty like scooped sort of vibe to them. Um, which I don't think I necessarily like would want on like a recording, but it seems to work for like an intelligible, impactful live mix. Yep. No, it, it definitely works. And it, I'm amazed always because when I made the jump to touring was stitched up hard and I started going to these medium sized theaters, you know, thousand cap, 1500 cap, I was amazed by how quickly low end energy gets out of control and the fact that you're still, you know, including a lot of that energy in your mix and it's not getting out of control. I need to learn some of your wizardry around that because I would, although in all fairness, uh, that theater tour I did on an M32 compact. And as we were talking about for the podcast, there, there are some definite limitations with the Midas platform, that Midas platform over the D live. So I can't wait to get out and see what the D live can do in, in those environments. Cause I think it'll with the dynates and yeah. all the, you know, the better compressed, the multi-brand band compression and EQ and all that stuff. It'll, it should go a little bit better. Totally. Yeah. I mean, having those, having those tools, especially the multi-band um, helps a lot with the low end. 
Um, I think that again, like with getting the low end punchy, but not overwhelming, a lot of has to do with just kind of like I was saying with EQ, like I'll just keep going with dynamics until I feel like that particular input isn't going anywhere. Um, so again, if that means like, you know, kick out into a comp, into a group, more, uh, you know, more compression or like, yeah, kick out into a comp, into a dynate on the lows, into a group, more compression. Like I just keep stacking until I feel like it's not going anywhere. Um, and same thing, like dynate on the bass just to like squish it. Um, and uh, I even, I kind of, I, ha- I keep, I, I keep a, a dynate on my, um, my like two mix, like my master bus. Um, so it's like before it goes out to any matrices, I mix on, I just use matrices for outputs. Um, so there's no like sub on an aux or anything. It's just the two mix and that gets distributed. So like the, I have a dynate that sits on my master bus that I keep out. And then if I feel like a room is super slow, um, I just pop it in and it's just like a, another like three or four dB of gain reduction and then like, and then make up gain on that probably like 120 down. And I just squeeze it more (laughs) and just to keep it like right there. I mean, it's, I really just focus on making everything like a beam of audio uh, that doesn't go anywhere that I don't tell it to go. Um, Which I think to some people seems counterproductive or maybe not counterproductive, just not like what you wouldn't want, you know, like I'm taking away what the band is doing perhaps, but I think because of the genre and the way the records sound and stuff like that, you know, with every drum replaced and, you know, everything's just super tight and, and, and mastered and everything to begin with that I can get away with that stuff with a band like August Prince Red because it sort of lends itself to that. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, I have a million questions, and I'm just trying to figure out the best way to order them. So sticking with the drum theme, because you were talking about your your kick in, you know, being EQ'd and compressed and then going to a group and then, you know, being run through the Dynate. Can you run me through your drum uh, signal chain? So you're, you're taking your, your kick in and out, and then that goes into a group. Are you, do you have another parallel compression group that you use for that kick in out or, you know, just take me through your, your drum mix layout, if you don't mind. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. So, so what I am, what's actually happening with the ABR kick drum is it's like a hybrid kick. Um, we're actually running a trigger. Um, and I have the, the trigger, um, is high pass to like 600 or something like that. And then um, I have a 91 that um, I actually have. I'm, I have trigger in and out. I'm running, I have like pinned at all times. I have a, a the, the, the TM2 or whatever it is, the, a 91 and a D6, but I've actually not been using the D6 recently, um, but I like never took it away. You know, I just kind of, I added a trigger at one point and then just kind of carried on. Um, but yeah, so I'm doing like a hybrid sound with the low end from the 91, um, being like the out part of the sound. I'm using air quotes there. Uh, so I'm taking the low end from the 91 high end from the trigger. Um, obviously the triggers, like, I think I have that saturation on the trigger, uh, just to give it some flavor. Um, but not a whole lot of processing otherwise, um, except for the high pass and then the 91, low pass and like pretty significantly like hacked up like giant mid cut you know probably like because the low pass is probably more like 300 350 like probably dumped as far as it'll go and i think i have another cut at like maybe one 100 120 and then probably like a 50 or 55 bump so it's just like a sub and then that's gated like really really quick probably like yeah, I don't know, like like half a millisecond or something. So it's just like, just you know, in solo or in a in a space that wasn't 
a room, it would sound artificially weird, but because of space and subwoofers and stuff that for ABR, you know, it's all I need. It's just that quick uh, little, uh, you know, blast of sub. And then those inputs go, um, I'll back up. I do have the net, the, the high end of the 91 on another channel. We were talking about me patching stuff a lot. Uh, I do have the high end of the 91 on another channel that I use sometimes depending on the set list. If there's a song that they have like a lot of like bridge sections that have more of like a groovy feel. And if I don't want that trigger sound, I might like flip. I keep the, I keep the, the trigger and the in channels like right next to each other. And I was punching both at the same time, just punch the mutes and flip from one to the other. Um, but mostly I just use the trigger for the attack part. And uh, that goes to a subgroup, probably more EQ, like I was saying earlier, like a kind of like a general, like a smiley face uh, EQ. And then uh, I think I have um, the transient designer on that. And I run that in parallel. I'm not doing a lot of parallel compression with ABR, but I do use transient designers on kick, snare, and toms in parallel. Uh, yeah, and then I, and then I just I just um, I just kiss that kick a little bit with a little bit of uh, it's probably the opto comp. I, I, that's like my favorite compressor on D Live, um, and it just adds again. Like I'm doing so much shaping that I feel like anything I can do to add flavor like back to it uh, is helpful. So like, even if it's just like a DB or two on the opto, um, it just gives it some life back. Um, and yes, yeah, so that's it for kick. I think there might be like a dynate on the kick in, like just the top, just using the top band, same thing on the kick out. There might be a dynate on the lows. Again, without having the show file in front of me, it's hard to remember exactly what I was doing, especially after not having seen it for six months. But uh, yeah, and then kind of continue on with that theme. Top and bottom, they get to a subgroup. Um, I don't think I do any compression on snare top, a little bit on snare bottom to like level it out to try and bring out the ghost notes. And then I smash the snare top, like probably like, I mean, smash, I guess, is sort of subjective, but I'm probably getting like six to eight dB of game reduction on like a on like a good hit um, with the 1176, whatever it's called, on the DLive um, on snare. Again, that with that transient designer in parallel. Um, so I have that like real, I have those transient designers set like real aggressive because I found that when they were 100% wet, they would like, it would just play with the envelope too much. And I was like trying to add impact, but I wasn't, um, it was like taking away the, the vibe of the drum too much. So I, I figured out that if I just set them like real wacky, like just over the top. So it's just like all thwack and pump and like just sounds ridiculous. And then I just add that back in in parallel, just with the wet dry on, on the effects unit. Uh, I get a much more, I get what I wanted really, uh, which is just like a little more impact. Um, yeah, and then same thing, Tom's uh, rack one, rack two, floor uh, into a group. And uh, I do uh, some, again, I think that's the opto again on that group. Um, opto and the uh, the transient designer in that group. And then all the cymbal mics into a group. And uh, I think I'm actually running I dynate on my, I have a mic that I keep over by the ride in the China, uh, kind of like way over on one side of the drum set. And I have a dynate on that, that um, basically is just set to like the aggressive area of the China symbol. So like when he's playing the ride, it's probably like, I don't know, between one and three K somewhere in there. And when he's playing the ride, nothing's happening. But then when he goes to the China, the, it just smashes all that um, like gnarly China information uh yeah and that's it um for the drum chain i don't have like a i'm not doing any like parallel like whole parallel groups or like kind of studio style processing like that um it's just sort of like getting my my input channels like where i want to be and i just find that the group processing helps a lot with summing microphones on like multiple microphones in the same source that's kind of how i treat 
subgroups live. So I'm not doing like my, in all my mixes, there's not a lot of like master processing. It's just about, because when I'm mixing live, I just want to be able to be like that thing. I want to just work on that thing that I'm trying to get to sit exactly where I want. And I don't really want it to affect anything else like down the chain really. So I just kind of like focus on summing stuff down to like a group if there's multiple mics on it and then um, kind of just moving on from there. Yeah, that's cool. Um, just to clarify for people who aren't as familiar with the DLive platform, when Chris is talking about the parallel uh, compression on the compressor, the DLive has this really awesome function where when you're in your compressors, you can actually parallel compress without having to create a separate bus that you send everything to you, you just, whatever's being compressed either in that group or on that channel, you can parallel compress it right at the compressor. And there's a, there is actually a dial called wet dry and it's usually a hundred percent wet, 0% dry or no, I think it's just the opposite. I got to look uh, at it. Well, it starts out hundred percent wet. So like when you, if you have a comp on and you're not getting any gain reduction, it's just, it's still in and totally, but it's nice. You can even like, if you do them like minus six, minus six, cause they're in DB. Um, which isn't like a lot of wet dry controls on like plugins and stuff are like a, like a dial, which I, I kind of like that better than the wet dry thing, but it's nice. You could do like minus six and minus six, kind of like you're summing two mono buses and you'll get like 50, 50 and you can kind of like play like a little more wet, a little more dry, but I find like that that minus six, minus six on wet dry. If I know I'm going to want it in parallel, is like a nice place to start so that I'm coming out of the gate in parallel. 50-50, um, like without any extra um, volume, because obviously, you know, louder is better. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, but yeah, that wet dry control is super, is honestly probably one of my favorite things about the D-Live because uh, it takes so much extra work <laughs> to get a parallel process happening and coming from the world of console du jour, like, I don't have time for that, you know, even though I'm carrying a console, like, you know, all the time now, you know, I barely work for anyone other than ABR. Uh, it's still just sort of like, you know, how I, how my mind works. Like, why would I burn on these extra buses? You know, I can just turn this knob here. Yeah. They, the, some of the things that they've thought about on this console are really, once you use them, you, it spoils you because you'll jump on another console and you're like, Oh, crud. It's not that easy anymore. I've got to go back and do the hard stuff. Right. Uh, for your mix, are you doing uh, left, right mix, and then you're sending it to matrices? You said so. You've got your. Do you run your? Do you run stereo matrices or do you run your left, right uh, matrices mono? How do you handle that side of things? Yeah. So I run um, a, a stereo PA matrix. I call it my my, which would be like my main left, right. So that's a stereo matrix, um, and then. Uh, I think that's honestly just for the ease of like EQing that output uh, and stuff. And then, yeah, I have a, a mono sub and a mono front fill uh, sums. And then, I, you know, obviously like there's a couple other matrices that are going like for whatever's, you know, combination of outputs uh, any sort of situation might call for. But yeah, basically it's just a stereo PA and mono sub and mono front fill. Do you carry your own system processor, like a lake or anything like that? I do not. Um, I don't carry any, I don't use anything other than the D life. Um, and that's partially because of budget stuff. Um, like I may have sort of uh, mentioned earlier, August Prince Red is very um, budget conscious, um, which is, you know, can, can be kind of frustrating, but also, you know, understandable, you know, they're all, you know, guys around my age that have families and, you know, they gotta, they gotta do what they gotta do. But anyway, uh, yeah, I don't carry anything, um, other than the live. So I do all my system processing. Um, if I need any, like, if I think I might need some extra delay or something, I might just, you know, do that from the output. Um, but all my EQ and stuff like that, I do, um, on the D live. Cool. Uh, can we talk about vocals for a little bit? What are you What are you using for a vocal mic? And then uh, what type of magic are you working to make those come through so nice and clear? Sure. Well, this will be a bit of a little, uh, oh gosh, can't think of the right word, but I just, uh, 
I just switched um, both vocals in ABR, the, the lead vocals, Jake and the bass player, Dustin, who does a lot of the background vocals to um, SE V7s. Yeah. And uh, it honestly, like, blew my mind. Like, uh, I haven't tried a vocal mic that I was more impressed with immediately uh, than the V7. What, uh, I'm going to interrupt for one second. What do you, what, what did you come from before the V7 and what did you really see as like the primary, oh my God, this mic is so great. What was, what was that characteristic? I, I've, I've spent a lot of energy uh, trying to figure out which vocal mics I like. Um, and because I think because of my, because I get to do my house gigs at home and I've worked with the, you know, a number of different bands and, you know, I've used, obviously I've used 58s a ton and, uh, you know, 935s and stuff like that. And I, I was on a pretty big high LPR 35 kick for a little bit. Um, and like probably the longest running band I worked for before ABR was Memphis Mayfire. And I had Maddie on a high LPR 35 for a little while. And then, uh, um, he switched to a, uh, uh, what is it? A KSM nine HS. Uh, and I really love that on him. Uh, but when I started working for ABR, they were all AT. And so basically from until very recently, um, Jake was on an AE 4,400. And um, I always just thought like, Oh, this is, this is fine. You know, like I, I thought it sounded hi-fi and um, has like a little more of like a kind of a scooped, you know, kind of like, um, I find that the top end on AT stuff is like really, I don't want to say surgical or sterile sounding, but like, it's like very specific sounding. Like, and if you look at the the frequency response, on a lot of their mics, like you see it, they're very like, there's a lot happening in the top end on those AT mics. And so it gives them like a very particular voice as opposed to like a, a mic with a smoother frequency response. And so I just been on that 4,400 with him. And then uh, we... This is, this kind of sucks because I'm just going to be honest with you, but like we, uh, I got, he, he wanted to try a wireless mic. And so we took an AT wireless system to Europe uh, last year and uh, got like a, a 4,400 for it. And I was just having like the worst time, like with feedback and <clears throat> just getting the mic to like cut, like having a way harder time than I did with the wired uh, uh, 4,400. And then uh, I had heard like a lot of people talking about the V7 and so I hit up SE and they sent me a V7 capsule to try and I like popped it on and it was just like instantly like, like, whoa, bypass my EQ and just like, it sent it super wide open and it's like the, the mid range is like very clear, but not like hyped, like a 58, like it doesn't have that like aggressive, like presence bump. You know, they call it a presence bump. To me, it's like a gnarly mid bump. And then, uh, and it had like a really smooth top end. Um, like the the bass player was on a 58. And the I had like a massive high shelf on his in-ear mix on the vocal. And I had like, just turn that off. And it just, to me, it just sounded like, like a vocal. <laughs> like it was the first time, I, other than like a couple of my experiences with like maybe the, the PR35, um, which even that like sounded really awesome to me, but didn't sound like exactly like the way I wanted it. Like with a high pass on the V7 to me just sounds like open and like finished, like flat. <laughs> and, uh, I just really love it. And then on top of that, it has like insane, um, game for feedback. So I'd like be hammering it and this, I'm talking like first show on the V7, you know, with like, a, with like, you know, one song at sound check and the vocals just like ripping on top of the mix and no feedback, you know, we're in like a 1200 cap club in Germany or something. And, and it was just like, Holy shit. Like this is, this is the vocal mic. Like this is my vocal mic at least. Um, so that's my big SE pitch. Um, but the V7 is again, at least to my ear, like the way a vocal mic should sound um 
yeah, I've just never been so instantly blown away by a vocal mic. I uh, I held up a pic, uh, one of my boxes for the V7s. I held it up so Chris could see it, but I have several of those capsules. And when I was mixing small club shows here in, Ma I live in Madison, Wisconsin, and uh, I mixed all these bar bands, you know, like little 100 capacity bars, speaker on a stick type of gigs. And when I got the V7s, I uh, I didn't change my EQ curve that I was using with the 58s and 58 betas. And I was like, I don't understand all the hype behind this mic because I this was a couple of years ago. And then I took the EQ curves off and I was like, oh, now I get it. Right. <laughs> they don't need anything. You don't need anything. Yeah. I've been doing, um, so the lighting vendor ABR uses here in the States is this company called Squeak Lights out of New Jersey. And because of the pandemic and everything, um, Victor and Steve and those guys over at Squeak have set up like a little streaming uh, thing, like in their shop. And I, they just did the first one and I, I, I went up and mixed it on like an X32 producer, but SE hooked it up. They sent us like a whole um, mic package to use. And uh, same thing, dude, like flat X32 show, uh, like in my ear, like in ears, because isolation there is not super awesome. And this dude who I've never heard sing before in my life, like walks up to this V7 and I have like a high pass on it. And I was just like, dude, this vocal sounds sick. Like it just, I just, yeah, I, I it's just a create, it sounds the way it should sound. That's the, that's the simplest way I can describe it. I'm going to send this podcast to SE with the hope that they uh, show us some love because all of the engineers that I have on rave about the SE and I've been using them since like 2018, 2017. It's been a couple of years now. You're an adopter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had a D live back then too. And then I sold it Uh, long story. Sure, sure. So, so I'm on my second D live purchase, which my wallet is still uh, crying about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what are you doing uh, during the pandemic? Are you doing anything to stay busy? You, you just mentioned uh, helping out the guys up in uh, the lighting company with their broadcast, but are you doing anything else to stay busy or keep your mixing chops uh, active? Yeah. So um, Matt, the drummer of August Burns Red has uh, put together a uh, website called MacGrinderLessons.com. It's like a um, lessons website, mostly focused, focused around um, him playing, like learning how to play ABR songs. And I've done all the editing and mixing of the drums um, for that. And um, I got a gig mixing um, like remote church worship services uh from a church local to me so they are like they're not having in-person services at least like in their normal facility and uh so they've been like multi-tracking during the week like they're and then doing like a broadcast and so they just like send me a folder full of multi-tracks and i mix that so that's been like those two things have been like my primary audio related um things i've been doing um yeah, the, Vic, the squeaks thing is only only happened that one time. I have a couple more things coming up in the fall, and things are gonna pick up here with a few other like live stream kind of related uh, projects. But yeah, other than that, just like playing PlayStation and waiting. <laughs> oh, we all are. Are you finding you have to do anything different on those live stream mixes than what you would do in a club or a, a theater or an arena? Y yeah, I mean, honestly. The my biggest takeaway from 2020 has been my experience getting back into mixing recorded music. Um, I've learned a lot this year uh, about that and found that almost none of my techniques that I use live translate to recorded music. Um, and it's given me a lot of ideas about how things I might try in the future. Um, but like that being said, when I went and did that, uh, live stream thing recently, I just, it felt good. Cause I just like immediately kind of muscle memory, like went back to mixing like live, how I, how I mix live. And, uh, you know, that felt correct under those circumstances. So yeah, no, I, it, it's been a, it's been a big learning experience for me, like trying to get recorded mixes to sound like good recorded mixes uh, and shy away from 
a lot of the techniques I use live. Yeah, people don't believe, well, I, I think they appreciate it now, but I would always talk to people out in the field uh, and I and they would say, you know, what's the big difference between mixing studio or mixing live? And I, I was like, it's sort of apples and washing machines, you know, like, yeah, you know, it, it's so different and you really gain an appreciation for studio engineers because you can't, you can't sort of like hide, I'm using air quotes, anything in your mix, you know, in a studio or even a podcast, you know, like it's uh, if I've, if my EQ changes from one podcast to the other, it's so blatantly obvious. Sure. And then I'm like, oh crud, I gotta go back and fix that. And sometimes I get lazy and I don't do it. So I apologize to everybody. <laughs> I, I doubt anyone's too, too upset about it. Even if they do notice. Well, it is all audio nerds. So they're probably, you know, compiling like a, a hate list. <laughs> to send. Yeah, there's going to be some, some thread uh, on some, some Facebook group or something, just ripping you to shreds for the, all that extra two five you had in that one week of your podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the dreaded two five. Um, yeah. So we're coming up on an hour, but I want to jump back to the D live. Uh, you mentioned that you were using waves for some playback purposes. Are you using waves for any other processing or are you keeping everything inside of the D live? Yeah. All the processing is on the D live. The only thing I use the waves for is, um, on the stage end, the playback, and then I have another Waves card in the surface in front of house that I use for multi-tracking and virtual sound check. Um, just and honestly, that is just because when we got the D Live, the 96K Dante didn't exist yet, and so Mike Bangs uh, told me like this sound grid works. You know, it's 96K, and I think the card is a little bit cheaper. Uh, so that's what I went with, and yeah, that's what we're doing. But that's it. No, no processing. I'm actually, I'm actually like, again, because of like the nature of club touring and the types of spaces and the amount of time I have every day with like, not that I have late load ins, but like, I just don't want to be in some sweaty box and hungry and like, you know, be worried about my server not working. So, and, and the D live has been bulletproof. Um, we've had it since, March, our, our, the one that the band owns, the one that's right here next to me, uh, the band is owned since March of 2018. Um, and it's been all over the world. Like it's probably been to Europe three or four times. It's been Australia, um, all over North America and Canada, probably four times, something like that. So, and like, no, literally no problems, uh, no dropouts, nothing. Any problems I've had have been honestly been waves related, um, networking, stuff like that. But Yeah. What are you using for a road case? Are you able to fly that uh, the console and everything? Yeah, so we have a um, Circle Three uh, made us a uh, a road case for the C fifteen hundred. In fact, the one that we have is the first one that Circle Three made. Um, whichever case, the first C fifteen hundred I had came from Claire um, in Lidditz, and they had a different C fifteen hundred case. And uh, I was at Starland Ballroom in New Jersey and Chris from Circle 3 came over and measured the case and then uh, made us the first one. I think he actually keeps them in stock now. Um, but yeah, it's sweet. It's super solid. Like I said, it's been on a lot of flights, especially like that trip to Australia. Uh, it flew like every day. Um, and uh, yeah, and then I have like a SKB. I don't know what the model is without like that fly rack that drops in. It's not even a fly rack, dude. It's just literally a foam, like a pull apart foam, uh, you know, I series. And uh, I think I pulled most of the foam out and I just literally like dropped the DM32 in just. And uh, so for like all those Australia shows, we just like pull a DM32 out, like find a monitor or something and like put it there and just kind of, kind of like didn't feel the most professional, but it worked and uh, it's still working. And yeah, so definitely um, shout out to Alan Heath for like super bulletproof hardware. Um, literally no problems. Had on a warp tour uh, for like a week in 2018, you know, pulled like ran, had it out there in the dirt and everything every day and zero problems. Warp tour is like dog years. I think a, a week of warp tour is like seven weeks of any other tour, you know, just the, the grueling logistics and, 
uh, gorilla nature of everything. Yeah. But yeah, if you get a chance, I don't know if you can see them behind me, uh, people, I apologize because this is not a video podcast, but I've got these drop-in um, SKB racks. They come in like four U, 3U, 4U, 6U, and then for guitar players, they have one that is designed for Kemper. It has a cutout in the top for you to put your your uh, stage box on there. But they're really awesome. They're, they're aluminum frame, composite surround, so they're really lightweight. And then they drop inside of an SKB uh, 3i series case with with foam all the way around it so when you get to the gig you just lift your your little rack out of the case set it on top of the case works really slick especially for fly dates and they're really lightweight i don't know what kind of magic they put into those but they're they're pretty awesome yeah we we, we have a couple of cases like that too for for kempers and and uh Axfexes and stuff like that but just for whatever reason we ended up with the uh rolling a little more dirty on the on the dm32 it deserves better. It might just have to do with the fact that it's like seven or eight U. Um, they might not make one that's big enough. I think that is what it is. But that, that's a good point. I forgot the DM versus the CDM. I have the CDM thirty two, right. which is the compact version. It has a single power supply instead of multiples, and I think I only have one card slot versus. Yeah, the difference. It's like single power supply, single gig Ace port, single option card slot versus three, two, and two. Yep. Yeah, and some days I wish I had those extra I.O. slots because I, I keep getting these ideas of other things I could do. But then your comment about being in a club, you know, and hungry, yeah. it always takes me back to reality. I'm like, I don't want to do that. Then it's just more stuff to worry about, and the D-Live is great as is. So Exactly, yeah. It's nice It's nice to know that it just works, and it does so much. Like, you know, I don't know. Like, I, I think about, like, oh, what would I want to have, like, in – a wave server or something, you know, like a bus compressor or a, one of those primary source expanders or something, something like that. And I'm just like, ah, I don't need that. You know, it, I got 64 multiband engines and, you know, whatever compressor I could imagine on every input and output, you know, and it's, I'm all right. <laughs> I don't know if you've been watching any of the other YouTube videos lately, but um, the mix wizard who I think is based in Australia he was talking to, oh, and I'm going to forget the guy's name, so I apologize, but one of the lead engineers from Allen and Heath, uh, and he was he had a distressor in his office in the background and then another effects unit. I can't remember what it was, but all of the comments in the YouTube video were like, please model those. That would be so awesome because that's really about the only thing that DLive's missing, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, a distressor is, is interesting because I feel like you might be able to get pretty close to, like, the cool thing about distressor is how diverse it is, I think. And but a lot of the distressor flavor is like 1176 flavor, and that's already there. And then you want something more insane, more insane. And there's that um, Valley People mod. What's it called? Uh, Mighty, I think. It's a, I think it's a, you know, a copying of Valley People Dynamite. It is. Yep. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, distressors are sweet, but. There also might be some licensing stuff too. They might care a little bit more. I know that they're pretty um, specific about who gets to have distressors. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, with the with the downtime and COVID, I imagine the engineers are busy packing in lots of goodies. That yeah, there hasn't been an update for a minute. I know. Yeah, one eight five. So I think the next release is going to be one nine zero for Allen and Heath, and they've been hinting at it for a while. But I think it's been over a year that they've been air quotes hinting at it. Right. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> All right, man. Uh, I could talk to you for a couple more hours about uh, the DLive platform and ask questions, but we are at just over an hour already, so I think we might uh, wrap it up here. All right. I want to thank you for being a guest and sharing your DLive knowledge and talking about August Burns Red, and uh, I hope I get to see you when we're out back on the road again. I'll definitely be uh, looking over your shoulder and stealing or taking notes, uh, however you want to interpret it. That's how it's done, man. That's how, that's how, that's how I learned everything I know. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, Chris, uh, amazing discussion. I really appreciate all of your thoughts and your time. And, uh, I'd love to have you on again, maybe for a round table. Uh, we could do a, a D live round table, like Drew Thornton and a couple of other guys that are big D live guys. I think that'd be fun. Sure. Yeah. That sounds good, Steve. Hope it, oh. hope it didn't punish you too much. I know I went on at length a couple of times. Oh, that's perfect. All right. Well, thank you, Chris, very much. I appreciate your time and uh, we will talk very soon. Great. Thanks for having me. 
And that's a wrap on this episode of Mix Masters. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please be sure to subscribe and then tell a friend or maybe leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I'd certainly appreciate it. I produce Mix Masters on the Allen & Heath DLive system with Sure microphones and a little help from Apple's Logic Pro X and some Waves SoundGrid plugins. One more round of thanks to Merritt Goodwin for the music. And until next time, stay safe and healthy, and thanks again for listening.